Um, our Heavenly Father, uh, we come and thank you that uh, you have given us your word. Uh, they are your judgments, they are your call, uh, and uh, we come not to sit and question it or uh, discuss it as if we have better ideas, but we come longing uh, for your judgments, as uh, the psalmist says. We come to sit beneath your word, and uh, we want to pray, Lord, for uh, a hunger and a thirst uh, for your Bible, and we do ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Valentine's Day, our Prime Minister decided to get married. Uh, he actually uh, proposed to Josie Hayden, uh, and he told the press uh, this. He said, we are thrilled. It is such a joy to be able to share this news with people. Um, we've never had a Prime Minister walk down the aisle as Australians. Uh, Mr Albanese, though, I must say, is 60 years old. Uh, this is his second marriage. He has a son who is 23 years old. And normally it would be high fives all round and excitement, uh, but he has been living with Miss Hayden for about three years. Um, and it should really, if you're a serious con Christian, you should be slightly concerned or quite concerned about all of this because really our society is celebrating it. Um, the sexual revolution really has changed everything for us, hasn't it? Um, our Prime Minister has set an example uh, many would call a wonderful example of first dating for a long time, uh, followed it up with a de facto shacking up for a period of time, uh, then followed it up with an engagement, and lastly you get to marriage. And we're going to find that's totally opposite to the plan of God, folks. Um, and he's not the worst in our society by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we tend to think he's the problem. Quite frankly, rank-and-file friends of ours would tell you that footloose and fancy-free is better than being married. Uh, being single and ready to mingle is something we all want. Um, and then same-sex relationships are certainly the vogue today. Uh, well, what does God think about all of this? Um, how does he speak into a world... Uh, that is uh, so perverse. Uh, well, let us look at it. And the first thing uh, we pick up from this passage is we should listen uh, to God when it comes to marriage. In Ephesians 5.31, um, Paul alludes to the fact that really God is the one who invented marriage. Uh, he does this really by quoting the creation account, doesn't he? Uh, in 5.31, he's actually quoting Genesis 2. Genesis 2.24, when he says, For this reason, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Um, you see, Paul gets his reader to go back and go back right to the beginning of this world and remember that it was God's idea for marriage. Um, when man was alone, when man had not sinned, uh, as Isaac pointed out, God assessed Adam's loneliness and uh, in Genesis 2.20 um, we find this assessment. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And then in kind creativity, in great love, 
uh, Genesis 2.22. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken uh, from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Uh, our society has forgotten this. Um, we've invented a fiction, really, that we call evolution. Uh, and it's become popular, I suspect, because it buries our history. It buries our origins. Uh, and many today think that we came up with the idea of marriage. A society just got together and said, oh, this is a good idea. Or governments came up with, uh, if you like, rules on who and who can't be married. Um, and this is not something that's modern. Uh, in the 50s, uh, Lloyd-Jones, he picked up on this and he says, most people think marriage is just something physical. Uh, they think marriage is just a construct. It's a man-made construct to legitimize physical attraction. It's a way to control this desire to gratify the flesh. Uh, marriage is really society's, if you like, mechanism to control uh, sex maniacs with basic instincts. Uh, people who just really want to fulfill their physical urges. Uh, and after all, it makes sense because we're really just all animals. We all came from animals. We evolved from animals. And by trial and error, we sort of worked out how we could get better, and we've become better, we've become more superior. And in our civilized state now, we've come up with this idea of marriage. Um, and so from now on, as we keep evolving, as we keep getting better and wiser and far more advanced, well, we'll come up with new ideas for marriage, and we'll come up with new, if you like, rules for how and who can get married. Uh, and as it gets more and more developed, uh, we're actually getting bigger and better and more wonderful. Um, folks, uh, th this kind of thinking is totally foreign to the Apostle Paul. Uh, Same-sex marriage is an abomination. Um, transgender marriages would be totally out uh, or rejected by the Apostle Paul. And how do I know this? How can I say this so authoritatively? Well, simply because Paul goes back to creation. He goes back to creation and he adopts God's definition for marriage. He's awake to the fact that if you go back to our origins, you'll find it was God who invented marriage and he invented it between a man and a woman. Uh, not between a man and a man. Not between a girl and her favorite puppy. Uh, God provides us with a definition in Genesis 2.25. And here he describes a man leaving his parents and becoming independent. Uh, a man does not consider marriage until he has crawled out from under his mummy's apron. And then he looks for a woman who is no longer the little princess at home. And they leave their parents or they become independent. And until they become independent, they do not commit themselves to one another. But once they've committed themselves to one another, it is then that they enjoy sex. It's a gift from God. Sadly, I've got to say this to Mr. Albanese this morning. Sadly, this is something we have to say into our perverse generation today. Uh, because we've moved so far away. 
Folks, uh, marriage is the, the most basic social unit in our society. It was instituted by God before the church. It was instituted before the state. Uh, God put us into a family before he put us into a church, before he put us into the state. Um, and marriage is not just something that is so basic, marriage is also sacred. Uh, it's not just legal, it's not just statutory, it's not just a piece of paper. God deliberately brings two individuals together and mystically unites them to one another. It's a mystery. Uh, speaking of a married couple, once again, Jesus quotes Genesis as authoritative. He says they are no longer two, but one flesh. Uh, and then he adds, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And now as we progress through Ephesians, as we've been working our way through Ephesians, uh, we should notice that as we've come to marriage, there's a shift, a total shift by Paul in his language. Uh, in verses 19 to 21, he's been using what we call participles. Participles are describing words. They're describing words not of nouns, they're adjectives. Their participles describe verbs. They add flavor to a verb. And so when Paul has been speaking about being filled with the Spirit, the verb, he's been using participles with it. And he's talked about singing together. And he's talked about uh, giving thanks. And he's talked about uh, also uh, submitting to one another. And these are the consequences of being filled. Um, the, he's describing how and where the Spirit operates and where he works and influences his people. A participle is something that happens. It's not something you're commanded to do. From verse 22, we see this big move. We don't find participles. We find commands. Paul is not describing something to you. He's telling you something to do. And you've got to pick up the, note, the, the tone. Notice the command, for instance, in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You're commanded, wives. Note the tone of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, something you do. It's not something he's coming and asking and telling you. It will happen to you. You will fall in love. You will not fall into submission. You will not sit up one day and accidentally find it happening to you. Uh, this is something you do. From chapters 3, uh, in chapter 4, and then most of chapter 5, Paul has also been talking about the church. But from verse 22 onwards, there's a shift again. And the shift is to the family. And you've got to ask yourself, why is this? Has he finished his teaching on the church? Is it over? He's finished that department and he's put that department to one side and now he's come to a brand new department in our lives. And our lives are made up of all these little departments. Or is he bored with the church and he said, I've had enough about the church. The church is a little bit boring. Let's move on. Let's get on to more exciting things. Um, you, you'll find actually, even as he speaks on marriage, Paul's greatest focus is the church. His greatest concern is the church. Uh, these verses on marriage actually prove that his mind and his focus 
never moves. Uh, it's where God is. God's plan for this world is that principalities and powers will find out about His wonderful plan through the church. And you'll find even in marriage, uh, Paul's mind is on the church. And so notice, for instance, in this passage, that wives, as you think about how you relate to your husbands, it's got to be as the church relates to Jesus. Husbands, as you think about how you're going to relate to your wives, it's how Jesus relates to his church. Uh, Jesus and the church are front and center in this passage. You pick it up in the summary verses in verses 31 and verse 32. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Uh, you're supposed to remember this, you know, when you hit rough times in your marriage. Um, you're supposed to think about this when you want to joke about marriage or complain about your marriage. It's God's idea, folks. It's not yours. It's for your good. And our marriages are to be an illustration to this watching world of God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ and how he will raise up a church for himself. I don't know if you think about this when you go through hard times. But let me ask you this question. Is this what you were thinking about when you said, I do, ladies? Can I ask you, were you thinking, what were you thinking when you went to that altar and said, I do? Were you thinking, I do think I can change him? Or maybe you were thinking, I do think I'll teach him how to tie up his shoelaces, the dumb so-and-so. Or perhaps you thought, and now I will be happy all the day. Um, folks, in the first place, when you think about marriage, we have to think about how can we, as a husband and wife, illustrate Jesus' relationship to his church. Not, not how can we be happy. Uh, we should listen to God about marriage in the first place. In the second place, uh, ladies, you will find yourself in submission. What do I mean? Well, let me take you a roundabout way and we'll get to it at the end of this second point. But, but while you're wondering where I'm going, let me ask you a question. What, what do you think is the most catastrophic thing in this world today? Um, some think it's war whether it be in the Middle East or in Ukraine. Others think it's Donald Trump. And then there's this group, growing group, who think it's climate change. Uh, but so few will put their hand up and say the declining marriage rates are the problem or the catastrophe of our Western society. Um, Demographers say that less than 70% of Americans will marry before they're 40. In other words, less people are getting married until they get to the age of 40. And no surprise, the birth rate has dropped to 1.6 kids per woman. Brad Wilcox, he's written a recent book, a very recent book, 
Uh, and I haven't read it, but uh, I've just got a, a, what do you call it, a review of it. And I, it makes me want to get it. He says, 32% of young adults uh, consider that marriage is a pathway to a happy or a fulfilling life. In other words, only one in three people in America think that marriage will make me happier. Um, he also says that if you go to the same group that was surveyed and ask them another question, so for instance, would financial independence make you happier? Would money make you happier? The same group who said, only 32% said marriage would make me happier. 88% said financial independence would make me happier. Yet Wilcox ha says, he says in his constant questionings and surveys and all the data he's been able to gather together. He says, the mountains of data show us that married people are 30% happier than unmarried people. And he demolishes five myths about marriage. Um, so firstly, he says, the myth that flying solo makes you better off. He says, it's a myth. It's not true. This idea that family diversity, that you can make family anything you want it to be, is something you should embrace. He says that's a myth. It's all garbage. Um, the idea that kids will make you unhappy, that's another myth. Uh, it's, it's not true. And then the last two, which he claims, are probably the most dangerous of all, or the most corrosive of all, are... Finding a soulmate who will make you happy all the time is the most important thing to find. He, sa he says that's corrosive. And the fifth one, or the mo other very important one, is equality in the jobs that we have in marriage will make us happy. Uh, he argues that's all junk. He says the data supports that most women do not want to split all jobs 50-50. He, he doesn't say this, but I've got to ask him the question. Are you telling me that men and women are different? Are you telling me that maybe God might have got it right? Did you have to do so many studies to work that out? Read verse 22 with me, please. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We looked at this word submit in verse 21 last week and Paul was speaking about church life, if you remember. He said, submit to one another in the fear of God. Uh, but then he shifts immediately after that from the participle to the command. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And we found out this word submit is an army word. And I don't know if you remember, but... Um, once again, it was Lloyd-Jones uh, who said, that the word can mean fall into line. Uh, you can join an army voluntarily, but once you join, you are immediately under an officer, he said. You are no longer an individual, but rather you belong to a regiment. Uh, once you sign on the dotted line, you sign your right to do your own thing. Uh, you cannot choose when you wake up. You cannot choose what food you eat. You cannot choose when you will have a holiday. You have to think of the army first. In essence, you sign away your right to rule your life. 
If you choose to do your own thing, then you'll be charged with insubordination. Now, Paul never suggests that marriage is like joining an army. Um, he, he doesn't get anywhere near that. But it is jarring, isn't it, to have Paul use an army word when he's talking about marital bliss. No one in this room, I think, doubts for a minute that men and women are equal. Uh, we all know the principles, don't we? We both bear the image of God equally. We're both equally sinners. We're incredibly equal. We're both equally saved by the same Saviour and the same grace uh, that comes from God. So, so when Paul says to women, submit to your husbands, he's not undoing what he believes about equality at all. Uh, he's making the point that God is bringing uh, two equals, but they're different. And they have different roles together. He's bringing them together quite voluntarily, but voluntarily they come together to accept complementary roles. Uh, today our culture would tell you that if you use that word submission in a marriage context, what you're actually talking about is subjugation. What you're speaking about is oppression. What you're going to have is exploitation. And so many will take that word submit or obey or anything out of there marriage vows. Uh, but all that does is really distort and pollute something that God made that's good. Um, can, can I just digress for a little while and just speak to the ladies only? And I'm not going to ask you all to go on this side and the other one to go on that side. I'm not going to ask you to wear red or blue either. Uh, just stay in your seat, hold your husband's hand and I'll take you through this passage now. Uh, but before I do, can, can I take you back to your wedding day? Uh, and even a few days before your wedding day. Uh, do you remember your dress? C can you get in mind uh, the makeup you put on and what you looked like in the mirror? Um, your hair was done by someone and I don't think you would have ever had as many people tell you that your hair is perfect as you had on your wedding day. Everything you wore was new. Uh, all your friends and family came and made a fuss over you. Um, you were told a lie by your parents on that day. They told you that this is your day. And your husband, like me, was as weak as water and he just perpetuated the lie and said, it's your day. Um, you got to the church and at the end of the aisle you came and you had to stop and you looked and you saw this handsome young man. Uh, he brought his penguins with him and you wondered why they were even brought along but once the music played you said, I'll get over it. And then you started walking slowly down the aisle. And you heard gasps. Uh, you, you looked around and everyone was staring at you. Uh, and then photos. You felt paparazzi were invited. And, and then you get to the end of the aisle and 
whoever was giving you away gave you away to this man and you held his hand and the rest of the service was a blur. And if you were not a Christian, it was blah, blah, blah. But somewhere in the service, I've got to remind you, you said, I do. Somewhere in the service, you said, I will. Um, somewhere in the service, you actually signed a piece of paper. Yes, you took it home and stuffed it in a bottom drawer somewhere. But do you remember why you said, I will? Do you, do you remember at all what you said when you said, I do? Have you ever asked yourself, what do those two words mean? Well, well from my vows, uh, let, let me paraphrase roughly what it said. It, it meant you agreed to put yourself entirely at the disposal of your husband. You voluntarily said, all that I am is for you. You said, my intelligence is for you, my intuition is for you, my sense of humour is for you, my gifts are for you. In our vows it even said, my body is for you. Here I am, you said. This is what I am. This is what I have, and it's all for you. I will even drop my surname for you when I sign the paper. I will renounce my old family and break up this family that I grew up in to start a new family with you. You see, what you worked out on that day uh, was that you're going to kill off your own plans and your own agendas. And you're going to take up your husband's agenda and your husband's plans. And rather than starting your day from now on and asking yourself, what's going to make me happy? Um, you were going to say, I I'm going to ask my husband, how can I help you with our plans? How can I help you with your agenda? How can I make your day happy? Now I'm sure most of you ladies here are not um, like we were when we were younger. You went to a Greek class before you got married and you said I'm going to study Greek because I really want to understand these verses first before I get married. And the key word I really want to understand here is the word submit. And as you studied Greek and you went through six months of Greek in Bible college, you worked out that submit is in the middle voice. Um, it is certainly that military word, but it's in the middle voice, which means it's voluntary. It's something that you happily give up. It's not something that you're forced. It's not something that comes upon you. And then you went to Genesis 2 because you thought, this marriage is the biggest day of my life, I'm going to study the Bible. I'm going to think about this before I make a commitment to this bloke who can't tie up his shoelaces. And I'm going to go to Genesis 2 and see what did God really intend for me in marriage. And as I read Genesis 2, I worked out that 
as God described Eve, he described her as a helper, comparable to Adam. Adam didn't have to go to the angels to find a helpmeet. He had to go to the animals. He had to go to someone who would submit to him, quite frankly. And then he didn't find a wife that was taken out of the skull of the man, nor out of the foot out of the man, but Matthew Henry says, from the rib. Someone comparable to Adam. And then it dawned on you that once you sign that marriage certificate, you're going to be playing second fiddle. You are not going to be the lead violinist in the orchestra. And even though it dawned on you, you got up and you ran to the Chapel of Love that morning. And you said, I will. You said, I do. And you said it voluntarily. You said it sincerely. You said it wholeheartedly. You said it enthusiastically. Now I know I'm describing all of you here, ladies. But if by chance you were not like that, and you did not do all the research before you got married, and perhaps you've just worked it out now for the first time, or maybe in other marriage seminars, uh, at last I hope you've come to the same view that John Stott has. And let me read what he says. He says, a man will find himself being a man. He says, a woman will find herself being a woman. Genuine self-discovery, genuine self-fulfillment does not come from striving to be someone else. It does not come from imitating the opposite sex. You see, feminism has sold you a lie. That, that you can be a man. You can be equal to a man. You can have all the roles of a man. And it is no surprise that as women have tried to be the man in a relationship more and more and more, that we give birth to a generation that now has an identity crisis. And we've got all kinds of kids thinking they can be pet cats, to pet monkeys, to being anything under the planet. Ladies, you will find yourself in submission. And the third point, your submission is to the Lord. Now, now surely the passage is telling you already that Christianity is not just for Sunday. Uh, it's not just for one hour a week. Uh, Christianity might start on a Sunday when God meets especially with his people and his word is read and his word is explained, though feebly. But once the truth comes and once the truth works into your mind and into your understanding and into your will and into your emotions, it has to work out into every part of your life. It impacts Monday work tomorrow, Tuesday's leftovers, Friday night footy, 
Saturday lawn mowing and yes, even marriage. You see, you might be thinking there are some zones in my life that are no-go zones. There are certain areas of my life the Bible has no right to enter into. And I'm telling you that Ephesians 5 should be shouting at you and telling you there are no no-go zones for the gospel. The Bible does not allow us to say to God, this area of my life is off limits. Now some churches, for this reason, do not teach on marriage or parenting. Because they feel the minute they bring up the whole topic, it's going to divide the church. It's going to offend important members. And it's too risky. And of course it's too risky. It's too risky because there is a massive problem with marriage. And you've got to face up to the fact that marriage inherently has a problem with it. The problem was not God's making. The problem was definitely introduced by man in the fall. And this polluted marriage, it brought two sinners together and stuffed them into one home. And so now we find these concepts of love, these concepts of submission, are difficult, distasteful. We even find them dirty. And we're born so self-absorbed, we're born so unsubmissive and rebellious that even after conversion, remaining sin pollutes our very existence, the stench of it remains with us and it constantly drags us back to being thoughtless and totally self-centered. So rather than thinking about our responsibilities when we come to think about marriage, if I bring up the topic marriage, the first thing we're thinking about is what are the privileges of marriage? What am I owed in marriage? What should someone else do for me in my marriage? Wives rejoice at finding a man who's interested in their welfare. They find a man who's committed to protecting and providing for them, and they think happy days. Yes, I will have to work with the kids, but I can stay at home. I'm not in traffic anymore. And knowing that God has already provided someone who will put up with all that other stuff, um, they're happy really to get on with the work at home. And so the overriding focus uh, around the dinner table is usually, uh, I need to point out to you, hubby, what a godly husband should do. If you're a godly husband, you will do this. If you love me, you will do this. Any long-drawn discussion about what God expects of me is taboo. You dare to bring up anything that is related to my responsibilities, well, you're going to be in trouble. That, we can't talk about that. You see, Elliot puts it this way. He says, homes are ruined when everyone thinks of what the other party needs to do for me. And even now, I suspect some ladies are thinking... I can't wait for next week when it's his turn. And men, if you're smiling, it's only because it's not your turn this morning. 
this is a massive problem with marriage, isn't it? Um, we all have an eye on what our spouse needs to do for us. Um, you would think, as Christians, we would sort of wake up in the morning and say, uh, what does God expect of me? Uh, we would look at the text in Ephesians 5 and notice instantly that Paul is not speaking about the privileges of marriage. He's actually speaking about the responsibilities in marriage. And so to a fallen woman who is saved by grace, he is authoritatively commanding you that it is your responsibility to submit to your own husband. He's saying focus on your responsibility. Do not focus on what your husband should be doing. He addresses the wives first. Did you notice that? And then he commands them three times in the passage. Did you count that? We saw the first command in verse 22, which was just read to us. But if you go to verse 24, it's repeated again. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. He just adds two words there, in everything. Uh, just in case you missed it, because you might have thought in the first verse when he says submit to your own husbands, you might have said, well, in some things. No, he says in everything. And he says just in case you think you're not supposed to submit to him in the kitchen, perhaps you think you don't need to submit to him in parenting because you know better. Or you're definitely never going to submit to him in the bedroom. And why should I submit to him at the shopping centre? I could go on and on and on, couldn't I, ladies? But this is hard enough. Um, but you know what? Paul goes on one more time. Because in his summary, he gives you one more additional thought on marriage. Verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular... So love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word respect can be translated with these words. Struck with fear. To venerate. To show deference. What does it mean? Well it means to genuinely see that your husband's headship is legitimate. It's not just a construct. It's something appointed by God. And we'll look at that next week. It means to speak well of him. To venerate. It means that you need to consider his requests as something that is good for you. You don't start off with no. You start off with thinking about it. Now the big question is why does Paul pick on women? Why does he pick on them first? Why does he pick on them three times? He was a single man. Who else was he going to pick on? <laughs> you know that's not true. <laughs> and you know it's going to be no surprise to you at all that he picks on husbands three times. And, and it's going to be no surprise to you, he's more than even-handed. You see, if you count the words in the passage, 
He gives 40 words to wives. He gives 115 words to men. And so happy days next week, men. But what should strike us though in this passage is the repetition. Three times he has to say something so simple to both men and to women. And three times is really stressing how important this is, isn't it? God is saying to us, order in marriage is important. It might not be important to you, but it's very high on God's list. You see, having addressed submission in church, Paul commands the women to copy that submission and bring it into their homes. Uh, he could be saying this, he could say, watch the older women who are submitting to their husbands and copy them and bring it into your home. He could be saying, if you're struggling with submission, go to the older women and ask them to teach you how to love and submit to your husband. Or he could be just saying, have you noticed when you come to church, it's men that are called to lead and pray. It's men that are called to lead and women are actually called to be silent in church and to submit. And follow that submission because it's actually a picture of the Trinity. It's a picture of the Godhead. Uh, there was perfect equality between Jesus and the Father and yet the, Father, the Son submitted to his Father. Uh, and so He's really just reminding you, you've been brought into the kingdom of God. You've been born again, you've been redeemed by Jesus. And so your first inclination, your first movement, must be to ask, how can I please and glorify God? And it should not be, what do I need from my husband? Or what should he do for me? And so, what I have to say, which is probably a very distasteful thing in all honesty when we look at the sinfulness of husbands, uh, nevertheless I've got to say to you, you must submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And surely these words as to the Lord mean that you cannot obey him when he asks you to sin. But it also means that when you submit to your husband, it's because you're ultimately submitting to God. You're not submitting for your husband's sake. No, you're willing to submit to him because you're so submissive to the Lord Jesus who came and died for you. You see, this is what you vowed when you walked down that aisle and said, I do. Uh, you vowed that you would make your marriage a picture of the Lord Jesus and his church. And Paul is saying, now it's time to do your part. It's the right thing to do. Notice his words, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. I, I don't know if you've ever heard that saying. He's a saint abroad, but a devil at home. Uh, this applies to husbands and to wives as well. You see, God doesn't want you to be a saint here. He wants you to take the gospel that you hear here and bring it into your home. 
you have a picture of the gospel at church and the way Christians live and he's saying now I want you to put up that same picture on display at home it's so difficult it's so challenging but please do not give up please keep having even the smallest go at an effort at this because if the gospel cannot change your home I suspect your life will not change either ladies your submission is to the Lord let us pray our Heavenly Father we thank you again for your word and we thank you more uh, for our Saviour the Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you for his humility for his submission even to the cross and we thank you that you have raised him into the heavenly places where you actually bring all your people to as well and we pray that you would strive with us and Lord encourage us but most importantly even as we feel our weakness we pray we would look to him this morning in Jesus name Amen well, We're going to sing, it's very hard to find verses on women submitting to husbands so let's sing uh, May the mind of Christ my Saviour